0: My name is Pastor Tanner Turley, and I serve as the lead pastor of Redemption Hill, and just so thankful for the opportunity to worship God with you, to meet with God today, and to hear from Him, and to sing to Him, and respond to how great He is, and today we're continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark. We're calling it simply Follow We're talking about what it means to follow Jesus and to follow Jesus in all of life. And so I just want to jump right into the text today. So go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 3. I'm going to read for us verses 13 through 35, all right? So buckle your seatbelts. We have a lot of ground to cover, and it is very, very nice ground, all right? So just get ready. Uh, Jesus is amazing. And we're going to see it right here. This is what it says. Mark writes, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whoever blas- whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mothers and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother father we ask that as we encounter you and hear your voice and your word lord that you would give us humble hearts that we would receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. God, help us to hear from you today and to measure our lives against what we see here in the life of Christ and the life that he calls us to as he invites us to be followers of his. God, I ask specifically, no matter where we uh, have come from or what spiritual kind of background we have or or where we feel uh, we are with you, whether super close or super far, God, that you would speak to us today by your Holy Spirit. Draw us close to your heart that we might know the life and the freedom that is found through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. These words from Mark chapter 3 teach us about the new people of God. That's what I want to speak to you about today, the new people of God. And what we find here is the, the new people of God, they have new priorities, they live with a new perspective, and they follow a new path. I want to start by looking at the new priorities of the new people of God. We see that their new priorities focus on proximity and ministry. Don't miss the profound revelation found in verse 13 where it says, Jesus went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. We see here from the life of Christ that Jesus, before he was about to make one of the biggest decisions of his life and ministry, who he was going to call to be the 12 closest followers of him it says that he went away on the mountain. He's really the Galilean hillside, but Mark uses the language of mountain to call back to all the, the, the mountain moments of God, meeting with Moses and, and just how Moses sought the face of God and Jesus now seeking the face of God. By the way, sometimes we are making big decisions and we want answers without asking, you know what I'm saying? Like we, we want God, like show me what you want me to do and how, what I should do in life. And, and yet we, we just sometimes don't even ask, you know, it's like, Jesus got away, he retreated, he sought the face of God. Luke six twelve tells us that he spent all night in prayer on the mountain before he called these 12 closest followers. But then also, let's not miss that Jesus is the one who is calling. He's the one who is taking the initiative in the discipleship relationship. Here's, here's a question for you. Who's pursuing who? So many times we get it twisted, either theologically or practically, and we think like it's all about us pursuing God, and we must pursue God, and if we don't pursue God, he would never ever think of us or pursue us. But what we see right here is that God always takes the first step. We can only pursue God, because we have been pursued by God. This, this is, is a monumental shift in how most people think that we should relate to God. And this blows up moralism and, and having to be good enough, for, or, or, or that God would approve of us by our performance. This is the basis, and this is always how it's been with God from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. God takes the first step. God is not bossing us around, throwing out commands for us to keep. He is a loving Father who invites us into relationship and gives us instructions, and all of His instructions are loaded with love and goodness. And then when Jesus chooses his followers, he chooses 12. And you say, why 12? I mean, for for maybe, for many of you, it's like, this kind of seems coincidental. It's just 12 disciples. That's like a manageable number. Like, you know, 20 would be too much and three would be too little. So how about we meet in the middle and almost in the middle there with my math. And it's like 12. But Jesus, this is not coincidental. It's intentional. Because if we go back to the Old Testament, we would find that the the people of God, they were made up of what? Twelve tribes. God identifying his people, the people of Israel, in 12 tribes. And now Jesus calling out 12 people to represent his new people who would follow him. And as one scholar taught me this week, I love this, Jesus is not part of the twelve. Just as God called the 12 tribes of Israel to be his people, to follow him, to to walk in his ways. Now, Jesus is calling people as the son of God to follow him and to follow his ways. This is another implicit claim to deity. And we are seeing it every single week in the gospel of Mark. That's why he calls 12 but who are the 12? Let me, let me just encourage you here today. The 12 disciples were not all that impressive. You have Peter, Andrew, James, and John, four fishermen, never been formally trained or educated. Then you have Matthew, a tax collector who worked for Rome. You have Simon the zealot who wanted to overthrow Rome. Only Jesus could bring these two guys together. Then we have Bartholomew and Philip and Thomas, known for his doubts, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Judas Iscariot, who would ultimately betray him. And here's here's the point. They all come from different backgrounds, different gifts and passions different Enneagram numbers. There's ones and nines and fives in Jesus' camp. And the point is, listen, he calls ordinary people. Hello, this should really encourage us because like, I don't know about you. I mean, I know some of you are like really super amazing, genius people gifted in your fields and whatever. All right, but like at the end of the day, we're all ordinary people. But when you put ordinary people in the hands of an extraordinary God, it unlocks the limits of who those ordinary people can become and what God can do through those ordinary people. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 9 says it like this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards, Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Ordinary people in the hands of an extraordinary God to become all he desires for us to be, all he made us to be, and to do amazing things as we follow in his steps. But what were these 12 About what did what did Jesus have for them? I love verse 14 because it gives us perhaps the the clearest job description of a follower of Christ, better, better put, better, the best role description of a follower of Jesus, a disciple, that maybe we have in the entire Bible. It says that Jesus appointed them to be with him and that he might send them out with and sent. Can you say that with me today? With and sent. I can't hear you at home. With and sent. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? We live with and sent. How will we know if we're experiencing? You can ask yourself this question. I don't care how long you've been following Jesus, how old you are. Okay, if you want to know, am I living in the fullness of what God made me for, just ask, am I living with and sent? This is what Jesus has for us. The first priority of a disciple of Jesus is that we live with him. This is about proximity, Isn't it amazing that God invites us to be with him? God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life in our place, to die a cruel death in our place, to rise from the dead, that we might be restored in our friendship and relationship with God. I love it how... Mark Edwards puts it in his commentary. He says, discipleship is repeatedly defined in Mark by simple proximity to Jesus, being with him, sitting around him, hearing him, and following him on the way. So I just want to ask you today, how's your friendship with God? How's your friendship with God are you experiencing all that he has for you are you investing regular time into your like relationships are built on time right we we have to spend time with one another to grow and cultivate our friendships in life and this is no different with God that's why this year at Redemption Hill, we're, we're putting our best energy and focusing in on what it looks like to help people in your journey to invest at least 1% of your day, that's roughly 15 minutes, in focused face-to-face time with God. Why is that? It's because a follower of Jesus spends time with Jesus. But it's not just with, it's also being sent by Jesus. It's not just proximity, it's also ministry. When we talk about ministry, we're simply talking about serving others. We're talking about bringing the kingdom of God's light to other people. And I believe that conceptually most people people who follow Jesus, and even if you're considering, like, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Like, you might feel pretty comfortable with this idea of being with him, you know, like hearing his teaching, all of his wisdom, seeing the amazing things that he does. But Jesus says, look, now that you've heard me, now that you've seen me do what I do, now it's your turn. It's your turn. I'm gonna send you out, and he says, "I'm gonna send you out to preach, and I'm gonna send you out to have the authority to cast out demons." And let's just be honest; like we just get less and less comfortable with this role description. It's like super comfortable with Jesus. Jesus is awesome. Jesus says amazing things. Jesus does amazing things. But now, wait, oh, now, now you want me to go talk to people? A little less comfortable. And, and what's this stuff about? Having the authority to cast out demons. I mean, most 21st century Americans are like, can, can I just kind of hit command X on that? Like 15, you know, like that's, that's the, the, the cut option off of, you know, your maybe documents. Um, it's like, because we just don't know what to do with it. And part of the reason is, is on the one hand, we say like, oh, that was Jesus time. But, but we think about, it, it's like, as if demons don't exist today, Or we're just so scared to to actually exercise the authority to pray. Listen, I know this is provocative, but it helps us make the point. Pray the literal hell out of our hearts and homes and cities. Like, Like praying the demonic influence out of people's lives and homes and our city because you have lived in Boston long enough and you have seen the world that we live in to know that there is plenty of evil forces that are pulling us in all kinds of directions that are not God's direction. You say, well, Tanner, I, I see it here and Jesus gave it to his disciples, but what do I do? I just want to give you a few simple first steps for all of these parts of our role description, okay? Number one, when it comes to be with Jesus, just, just simply, listen, just simply create a rhythm in your life. Prioritize. Even if you start with just five minutes a day and you work your way up to 15 minutes or whatever number of minutes, just, just open your Bible and hear from God and pray. Simply means talk to God and, and listen to how the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you as you read the Word and as you pray simple as that. That's being with Jesus. But then, but then preaching is like, you know, we often talk about like, this is not just for the, the guy on Sunday morning who has the microphone. To, to preach Jesus is to communicate truth about Jesus. It's to, to talk about Jesus. And so to accomplish number two, go back to number one. I love this. One of my friends is really encouraging me with this personally. I'm still growing in this too, okay? So, so just as I'm interacting with people, no matter if they know Jesus, if they don't know Jesus, okay, if I just talk about my moments with God, my God moments, my, my God encounters, what, what he's teaching me about, uh, you know, worry and trust and prayer and asking God for wisdom or whatever it is that you read in the Bible this week and joy in God's presence and all of these things. Listen, if we just talk about what we're learning, what God is teaching us, how he's changing us, look, those are conversation starters and pieces that we can help people understand who God is, what he's up to in our lives, and oh yes, how they can also experience it for themselves. And then the third piece, like, living with authority over spiritual forces of evil. Listen, like, we all pray, right? Like, everyone prays. So this is what I just want to encourage you. Start with prayer. I know it might be difficult. I know if you never pray about, you know, the demonic realm, that you're probably going to, like, stutter, and it's going to be difficult. But listen, listen. If, if, if it is true, if the Bible is true, if, if the gospel of Mark is true, if Paul goes on after the death of Jesus and says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness over the, the spiritual realms, then just start with prayer. God, I'm, I'm praying against, in the name of Jesus, I'm praying against the demonic influences, the oppressive uh, influences in their life, in our city and you just fill in the blank. Listen, we we don't have to be afraid. Jesus has given us the authority. He has given us the power to step out. He is sending us out. The new priorities of the people of God are being with Jesus and being sent out by Jesus. Proximity and ministry is Jesus multiplying his life into us that we might multiply his life into other people. It's receiving from God that we might give to others. It's sitting with Jesus that we might go with Jesus. Receive to give. Sit to go. I'll never see the sign again the same way. Sit, go. That's the rhythm of a disciple. Thank you very much. Yes, we live in Boston. Sit, go. That's the rhythm of a disciple. These are the priorities of a follower of Jesus Christ. But as we see in this chapter, not everyone held the same perspective. And this is what we find in verses 20 through 30. We, we see that, that not everyone had the same perspective of the identity and the power of Jesus Christ. They didn't know that he was the Son of God, they didn't know that he was the long hoped for promised Messiah. And they missed his identity. They missed his power. And this even started, can you believe it, with his own family. Look at verse 20. It says, then he went home. Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again. Jesus was always drawing a crowd to hear his teaching, to to experience his healing power. And it says that the crowd gathered to the point that they could not even eat. And verse 21 says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind now now let's let 's kind of give his family a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, okay number one, the Messiah had never come okay so so you know this was like brand new territory for the entire world, much less their their own you know brother or sibling and, and oh, by the way, like my mom, by the way, when you turn 40, you don't stop being mommed by your mom. So, so if, like, if, if, if I'm so busy with ministry that I'm not even eating, then my mom is probably going to show up on my doorsteps and say, you need to eat. That, that's, what, that's what's going on here. But it but they, they just seemed like he was out of his mind, that, that, that he wasn't thinking straight, that, that, this is, that he's, he's taking this loving people and serving people a little too far. This is coming from his own family. But then in the very next verse, we see a more egregious accusation from the scribes, the religious leaders of their day, when they say in verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. I mean, think about this like verse 21, he's out of his mind. Verse 22, he's possessed by. Beelzebul, the prince of demons, and by the prince of demons, he's casting out demons. Now listen, I don't know if you've ever been criticized in your life, but if you live long enough, and, and especially if you lead long enough, I was just texting with one of our leaders, not a, in the church, but a leader in just vocational sphere this weekend, and just under some criticism, in a difficult situation. Listen, Jesus understands His own family, you're out of your mind. The religious leaders, I mean, the people who should have been seeing who he is first and foremost, they're they're bringing significant criticism, significant accusation. And and oh, by the way, when people criticize us, like oftentimes it's accurate, oftentimes it's helpful. We have room to grow. Listen, Jesus had no room to grow. And and usually our, our first reaction when we're criticized is like, Self-defense, right? You're coming at me like I'm going to defend myself. And Jesus of all people, I mean, could he not have said like, hey, guys, like I'm bringing heaven to earth here. Like the kingdom of God is shining before your eyes in everything that I do. And oh, by the way, I'm going to go to the cross and die for your sins. Why don't you guys be quiet for a few minutes? But I love what we learn about the life of Christ. And and put this one in in your your, your heart for when the next time you get criticized. Okay, listen, Jesus is so secure in his identity and his assignment. And most of all, in the love of God the Father for him. Do you remember Mark chapter 1, verse 11, where God the Father speaks from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. He's so secure in his identity and his assignment that there is no need to defend himself. He simply speaks the truth in love. And he points out the absurdity of their accusation. In verse 23, he begins and he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? And then he uses a couple of examples in Verse 24, he says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Verse 25, and a house, if it's divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Here, here he's, he's using two pictures, a kingdom, uh, think government and, and, a, and a family, a home, and he's saying if, if they are warring against one another, their demise has already started, the, their division will lead to a downfall. They will crumble because they are warring against one another. Interestingly, Jesus' language here, it echoes 2 Samuel 7.16, which speaks of the Messiah's legacy, where it says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. And so what we see here is that there are rival kingdoms at work. Jesus is not in alliance with Satan, but he has shown up to combat Satan's kingdom. They are rival kingdoms. There is a battle going on. And Jesus makes this clear in verse 27. Verse 27. you, You need to underline this verse. You need to know this verse. You need to understand this verse. Jesus says this, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he is first, unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So 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 let me let me just explain what's going on here. Okay. The man's house is Satan. The, the man who is entering and binding and plundering, the man who is the stronger man is Jesus. And, and, and then we ask, well, 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 what is the plunder? Or who is the plunder? And the plunder, we are the plunder. It's those who have been oppressed by the evil one who are following the prince of this world. We know this from the context of Jesus exercising demons and casting out demons from from people who were oppressed by demons. We know this from Isaiah chapter 49 verses 24 through 26 that talks about how the Messiah will take captives back. We know this from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. They say that all people who are not following the God of grace are actually following the prince of the power of this heir who is no one else but Satan himself. Jesus is taking back what Satan has taken from God. He is the stronger man. And I just got to say, like, this should make you lean in, if not like physically on the edge of your seat right now, like in your heart, you should be leaning in because we follow the stronger man. We follow the stronger way. Think about what this does for us. And again, this is so mind-blowing. and probably just blows up your paradigms of what it means to live for God and follow Jesus. Because I think when we hear about Satan and demons, it's like, oh, don't get me. like We're on the attack and we have to like, defend ourselves. But Jesus says in Matthew 16, don't miss this. He says, I tell you, you are Peter and And on this confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Think about the picture here. Who is on the offense and who is on the defense? Satan and the gates of hell are on the defense. The church of Jesus Christ is on the offense, battering the gates of hell. Let's not live weak lives. We belong to the stronger man. We are following Jesus Christ, who is taking back the kingdom of darkness with his kingdom of light. The Christian life is a life of adventure. If you are buying anything else, you have been duped, fooled, and seduced. Don't bring me this Jesus is boring stuff. It just, it's just not (laughs) true. And Jesus is doing all of this. He's doing all of this. And now we are doing all of this by the Holy Spirit. We saw in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove to empower his ministry of preaching and casting out demons and healing the sick. And we learn two important points here about Jesus and the Spirit. The first one is negative, and it is eternally serious. Verses 28-28. In 9, look at what it says. It says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Blasphemy is slander. It's saying things that aren't true about someone. And that's like 28. Can we just pause there? 28 is really, really, really encouraging. It's really, really good news. It says, look at this. How many sins will be forgiven the children of man? All. Oh. All our sins, all our blasphemies and slanders, will be forgiven but but now verse twenty nine but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin so 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 if I can just kind of be blunt here and just like state the obvious, okay, uh, no one wants to Live in verse 29. No one wants to commit verse 29. Unless you are out of your mind, you don't believe in God, you don't believe there's an afterlife, you don't believe there's heaven and hell, okay? Like, if, if, if you do believe those things, like, you definitely don't want to fulfill verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. There's only one sin that's unforgivable. You say, well, Tanner, what, is, what does that mean? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is attributing the work and the witness of God's Spirit through Jesus Christ to Satan. It's it's saying what God is doing through Jesus and what that is saying about him. Like all of his works were signs. Pastor John taught us this last week about the Sabbath. A sign points to something. So all of the things that Jesus was doing was pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so to deny the Spirit's work in Jesus is to say Jesus is not who he says he is. Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is not the Son of God. William Lane says it like this, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the conscience, conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God through Jesus' word and acts. This is the eternal sin. This is the unforgivable sin. So so what I have to say to you this morning is, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never received, which necessarily means you have either tacitly or explicitly rejected him, then you will be guilty of an eternal sin. That's serious stuff. That's the most serious thing I could ever say to you and I'm not excited about it at all. And yet, because you are hearing me share it with you today, means you have an opportunity not to commit that sin. Today, you have an opportunity. Like, if you're concerned that, hey, I might commit that sin, then that's a good sign that God is still working in your life and working in your heart to the point that you don't have to commit that sin, but you can receive Jesus and believe in who he is and turn from living for yourself to living for him, placing your faith in him and saying, God, I need you. Forgive me. Save me. My life is yours. And if you've never done that, I want to encourage you right now. In fact, I don't want to encourage you. I want to plead with you to do that today, right now. Receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, and your whole life will be flipped upside down in the best possible way. You'll know a freedom that you never know. You'll know a love and a joy that you've never experienced. You'll know a peace, not only with God, but with other people, because Jesus is peace. He is love. He is joy. He is celebration. He is righteousness. He is purity. He is holiness. He is everything that our hearts have longed for. He's living water that satisfies our thirst. He is the bread of life that by which we will never go hungry again. He's our shepherd. He guides us. He leads us. He is an amazing God. And so that was the negative part about (laughs) blaspheming the Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. But but let me me flip it now, just real quick, because you need to see this. What verse 27 and 28 and 29 show us is that Jesus, in everything he's doing moving forward, in all of his exorcism of demons, in every good deed, when he feeds 5,000 people who were hungry, and, and especially when he goes to the cross and dies on the cross for our sins, what is he doing? He is plundering Satan's kingdom. That's what he's doing. And it should cause our hearts to beat through our chests. We have new priorities. We have a new perspective of Jesus' identity and power, who he is, and what it looks like to follow him. And then finally, we, we also have a new path. Our new path is God's ways as God's family. We come to verses 31 through 35, and we we hit a interlocution. This is what literary scholars call what Marcus is doing here, okay? So sometimes the people, like, read the Bible, like, oh, the Bible was written by ordinary people. They weren't that smart, okay? They were, they were super smart, plus they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, which helped them out a lot. And so this, this interlocution, uh, you don't need to remember that. What you need to understand is the word sandwich. Every, anyone like Sandwiches. That's right uh, anyone ever been to Bob's in Medford, no, new tough students work to the wise like if you have to walk to Bobs just walk to Bob's okay and get you a sea palm okay that's chicken palm because what what Mark is doing here is he's he's taking the uh, Beelzebub account and that's the, that's the sea palm okay that's the chicken palm but he's he's sandwiching it with you know bread usually that's a sandwich so he has a piece of bread here and a piece of bread here and that's Jesus' family saying he's out of his mind in verse 20 and 21. And then now in verse 31 through 35, Jesus' family is trying to come in and get him again because, you know, they need to help him out. And so, so Mark is showing how Jesus' family and Jesus' opponents and the religious leaders are both rejecting him and trying to pull him away from his messianic mission. And Jesus responds when he hears, I love this, it says that he responds... When the crowd tells him in verse 32, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you, he answers in verse 33, don't miss this. Who? Who are my brother, my mother, and my brothers? And then he looked around. At those who sat around him, I love, I love how Jesus does what he does, right? He doesn't just like go right into what he's about to say and the lesson that he wants to teach. Like he lets it sink in. He like pauses and he looks around so that they feel his words. They know, yes, your family may be outside. This is a picture, by the way, of his family not yet believing in him. They are outside. This is what it said earlier, that they were outside in verse 20 and 21. And it's actually, it's not there. It says, it says it multiple times here in 31 through 35, that they were outside, but yet the, the disciples, they are inside, they are around him, and Jesus says to them, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus, When Jesus says this, it would have shocked their ears because in the first century, particularly in first century Israel, there was no greater relationship, no more elevated relationship than one's family. So for Jesus to say something that looked like a rejection of his family, which by the way, it was not, he wasn't rejecting his family, he was elevating his true spiritual family, which is everyone who follows him by faith. And so he's, he's pointing out that now he is creating this new people of God, this new family of God. This is what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says when it says, Then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are members of the family of God if you follow Jesus. You have brothers and sisters. If you, the people around you follow Jesus, they are actually your family now. And this family relationship is of greatest importance. But as the family, and listen again, if you haven't joined the family, you can join the family by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. But but now as the family of God, we live in a particular kind of way. We, We live by the will of God, the desires of God, what God wants for our lives. And it's interesting that Mark doesn't take the time to explain that here. And perhaps it's because he's already begun to explain it, that that those who do the will of God are those who look to Jesus, who repent, turn from their old way of life, and follow him no matter what that means. He just actually said what what it looks like to to follow Jesus. He said, those who follow Jesus, who do his will, they're gonna be those who are with him and are sent out by him. And this reminds us of what we read in James chapter one this week, where James says, be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This is our privilege now as followers of Jesus, as part of the new family of God. That, that it's not just about, listen, sometimes we think will of God and we think like just having a pure and righteous life, okay? And what I mean by that is like, you know, it's, it's about, uh, you know, be, being loving and kind and not hateful and mean. It's about having humility and not Pride. It's about self-control and not envy and lust and covetousness. It's, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. It's also about engaging in the ministry, in the business of God, being sent out by him, living proximate, but also living a life of ministry. And so what Mark chapter 3 teaches us is that Jesus is calling people into a new family to join his kingdom work. Jesus calls people into a new family to join his kingdom work. Following Jesus means living the life of Jesus. And I, there's this verse in Isaiah, I can't get it out of my mind since the end of last year, and I just want to share it with you. It says this, it says, uh, so they shall fear, the people shall fear the name of the Lord from the, from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. It's like all over the place. They're gonna, people are going to see who God is through Jesus Christ. They're going to fear him. That means they're going to respect and revere him, and they're going to, to, to talk about how glorious he is, and this is why. For he, the Messiah, will come Like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. This verse is all about Jesus. In his coming, he came like a rushing stream, driven by the wind of God, pointing us to the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit was driving Jesus in his life, in his ministry, in his mission to the point where he was like a stream of living water. Guess what streams of living water do? They bring life. Everything that we long for, the strength that we need to get through the pandemic, and everything that anxiety and and discouragement and, and, and work and what school, whatever it is, listen, Jesus brings life. He gives us everything we need to live our lives for him. But then Jesus would say this in John chapter 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this, about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let me just wrap this up in this way. If you have Jesus, you have his Holy Spirit. If you have his Holy Spirit, you have streams of water that are ready to flow out of your life that they would bring life to the people around you. We get filled as we come to Jesus and drink and he satisfies our spiritual thirst and he fills us with his living water, that's proximity. And then we go out wherever God takes us and we live the life of Christ and streams of living water just naturally flow out of us. I'm telling you, this is when the church will be the church. This is when God will turn schools and neighborhoods and cities upside down when people live close to Jesus, when people get serious about the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is in you if you are in Christ and streams of living water will flow through your life, overflow through your life as you walk with him. And so let's walk close. Let's live sent. Jesus. Jesus is on <laughs> the move. Let's pray together. Father, in the quietness of this moment, we need you to do some convincing. Because I've been doing this far too long and I've experienced it myself, God, that it's it's not the words of a person. It's not even reading words on a page that will change our lives, that will Number one, help us say yes to Jesus and experience the life of of following Christ. But then also to be filled with him that these streams of living water would flow from our lives and and, and, and impact the people around us in the best possible ways. So God, we ask right now that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. You would teach us what it means to live proximate and to to live sent, to, to be on mission with you. Not only that we can experience the adventure of what it means to follow Jesus, but so that more and more and more people can see who he is and what it means to have life in Christ. God, I pray right now for those that are saying, "This, this that's me, I, I need to say yes, I need to answer his invitation. He's calling me right now, like there's something that's tugging on my heart that, that's called the Holy Spirit, and I need to say Yes. God, give them the grace and the help and the strength to say yes to you right now. God, help us all to say yes. To not be satisfied with anything less than streams of living water flowing from our lives. As we follow you, we we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.